Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 133, covering Paul Anderson's Operation Chaos. And with me today is that corporate werewolf, Hoy. Uh, I'll have to take that under advisement with the board before I make any further statements. (laughs) (laughs) And also joining us today is Andy from Breakfast at the Ruins, which is a wonderful Michael Moorcock podcast I highly recommend our listeners check out. Andy, thank you for joining the show today. It's an absolute pleasure. So Andy, can you go ahead and let us know a little bit about your history with gaming and with uh, speculative fiction? Sure, yeah. So ooh, no, going back in the mists of time to the early 80s, something in the UK hit bookshelves and it was the fighting fantasy game books. And I think it was the, it was the entryway for a lot of people of my generation into the into the gaming world. You will have had similar things in the States, I'm sure, and maybe even fighting fantasy books made it over to the States. But I'd never heard of Dungeons & Dragons, although at one point there was the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon, but I think that was a a little bit later down the line. But these fighting fantasy game books were, you know, you start off with a paragraph, you make a decision, you go to page 36 or 54 or whatever, depending on the decision you made, and it had a very, very simple stripped-down bear system where I think you had stamina and something else, and you rolled a d6 and added something to it, and that was your stamina and you rolled a d6 and added something and that was life points or I don't know, something like that. And if you came across a beast, it had a rating and you rolled a d6 and you compared your score to its score and you would lose stamina points. And if you died, you had to start all over again. And they were written by um, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston, although not GURPS Steve Jackson, different Steve Jackson. So that was my introduction and they, they were passed around and collected amongst the the nerdy kids at school, as well as Target Doctor Who books and various other bits and pieces. And then one day, a friend of mine um, at school said, do you want to come and play Dungeons & Dragons? I was like, well, yeah, it sounded so magical and mysterious. And, you know, fighting fantasy books were a good grounding for it. And it was was AD&D first edition. I never played basic D&D. I never had the box sets like everybody else did. Although my parents... Once the new that I'd got into um, Dungeons and Dragons got me the master box set rules, which I opened. I was super excited about it. I had that incredible, I think it was a Larry Elmore cover with the black mm-hmm. box, the gold dragon, and I was super excited. I opened it, I read it, I couldn't make head and tail of it because it was <laughs> it was set four. But right. I had that on my shelf for a long, long time. But I then went out, I saved up my pocket money, I went out and got the player's handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, I think that, I think I got the, I don't think I ever had the Monster Manual. I think I had the Fiend Folio. Mm. And suddenly I was playing Dungeons and Dragons and my introduction to D&D very quickly, we started playing the first Dragonlands campaign. I think I had a character before that, but the character I most remember was a a magic user with a charisma of three um, (laughs) playing the Dragonlands campaign with, with all my friends. And there was just something about it that being a nerd, I mean, these things either click with you or they don't. So it, it clicked with me. I loved it from the very outset. Some of the kids that were the kids that were the, the dungeon masters were a little bit older, two or three years older, and that was that really. And that, that was at junior school, so that was probably I was maybe eleven years old, and then I continued to play throughout my school years. Branched out into 
Merp, I think, was my second game, which I got for You're Christmas. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and one day someone said, do you want to try a rune quest? And I said, yeah. And in the first fight, my arm got chopped off. And I thought, no, that's not for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> I gave up a rune quest. Yeah. So, so you mentioned being a nerd. Um, so that means that uh, you were already into science fiction and speculative fiction, even as you were getting introduced to role-playing games. Uh, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah. One of the inspirations behind the Breakfast in the Ruins podcast is that my tastes in fiction were absolutely determined by my granddad, who we called Pops. And Pops used to have... Pops was one of those granddads. He was a you know Second World War veteran, then worked um, as an electrician after the war, only liked brass band music, couldn't stand top of the Pops. You know, really, really typical straight-laced man of his generation, except he absolutely loved pulp science fiction and fantasy and he used to have Ooh. and my uncles used to get these books from uh, uh, uh oh i think it was motherby's books like had a pink pink stamp inside the front page and, and markets and they would bring the books around to pops and pops would read them and eventually they would come to me so my first paul anderson was uh, the broken sword and I got that off Pops. And I, I distinctly remember seeing it on his little coffee table where he would have a glass of his homemade ginger beer, his ashtray, his pipe, and on that day there was the broken sword with a green cover and there was Children of Dune with a Bruce Pennington cover. And it's, that, that image is burned into my memory. I still have that Children of Dune copy, but I don't, sadly I don't have the broken sword copy anymore. So they, they all used to come to me in dribs and drabs. So um, I got... Warlord of the Air, Stormbringer, the Michael Moorcock books when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, off Pops, along with all sorts of other stuff. Conan books. My sister used to get all the Westerns off him because mm-hmm. she used to read Westerns as well, like J.T. Edson and things like that. She mm-hmm. used to take all those because she enjoyed those. And then one day when I was about 14, my uncle Phil said, I've got some more books for you. And he brought them round, and it was two bin liners full of paperback books, just all pulp paperback books of every, just a, an astonishing collection. And I spent probably the next 10, 15 years, right through to my 30s, working That's my way through those two bin liners of books. Amazing. And uh, the day came when I had to move from Hull to Bradford, and sadly, probably about two-thirds of them, I had to take them all to, to charity or goodwill, as you would say. Mm-hmm. And um, they're, they're long lost to me, which is a real mm-hmm. shame. But, yeah, so it was it was kind of burned into me by my granddad this love of of genre fiction right so you mentioned a lot of authors who are uh, well known across the board and obviously michael moorcock is quite well known now but you're known for doing a michael moore podcast podcast and yeah. were you conscious at that point of michael moorcock being a british author and him somehow being different than the other books that you were reading yeah well not at first maybe um, the, the usual thing is i read stormbringer before i read conan mm-hmm. so and similarly I never got any Lovecraft off Pops because he didn't like Lovecraft, but mm. I got William Hope Hodgson off Pops. So the first time I ever saw Lovecraft's name was on the cover of a Sphere edition of The House on the Borderland with a, a pull quote from Lovecraft saying, a classic of the first water. So there's two things there. One was Lovecraft is an unusual name. The other is what on earth is a classic of the first water and what does that even mean? So <laughs> I, I was, uh, I, I kind of got a feel for... Um, probably the wrong end of Saws and Sorcery compared to a lot of other people who perhaps discovered Mocock after 
things like um, Robert E. Howard or Fritz Leiber or any of those authors. And strangely, Fritz Leiber, I never got a single Fritz Leiber book of Pops, despite the fact that all those books over all those years, not a single Fritz Leiber book was ever in one of those piles. So <laughs> as, as a result, Mocock came to me first. And at the time, I, I don't think I really considered who he was or even what he looked like. It wasn't until I bought my first Mocock book under my own steam with my pocket money, mm. which was, again, from like a... Well, in Hull would have called them tat shops, shops that sold dustpans, old records with notches cut out, which meant that there were seconds or, mm-hmm. or you know, meant, meant for a, a landfill if they couldn't sell them. And I got um, my experiences in the Third World War, the Savoy edition, which actually had uh, a picture of him and he looked like Grizzly Adams <laughs> with, with a big hat and a big bushy beard. So for years, I still didn't realise really he was English other than the fact that the character is a Russian spy living and working in London. Mm-hmm. So I, w- when I actually made the connection that Mocock was this really, really important British fantasist, I'm not sure. It was probably a little bit later, but earlier on I was just devouring them. Moorcock uh, obviously stands over at certainly very mo- uh, modern British, uh, by modern in the last 50 years, British fantasy and science fiction. You mentioned uh, the Ian Livingston uh, fighting fantasy. There's something I find distinctly sort of grounded and little gritty grotty grimy about british fantasy and british science fiction and, yeah and i think the expression gr- grimdark is a more yeah. modern expression for that isn't it which which is applied to role-playing games right yeah. grimdark but also there's a sort of a sort of a, a humor that underlies it that is distinctly british that is not you know sort of this sort of um oh we'll talk about today the humor in today's book which is a yeah. little bit more sort of american and technocratic if anything else um so um so I would feel like the tone must have been different, and you must have noticed the difference in tone between what was being produced in the UK and what was being produced in the United States, if not right away, then eventually. Yeah, absolutely. And the certainly, I mean, by, by the late 80s, where things like war and fantasy role players hit in the market, and it's it's taking Mocock tropes wholesale and weaving them into its own law and and like sort of history and narrative and I, I don't think i really we really saw too much more of that in terms of mocock's influence on the genre perhaps other than maybe um fairly low-key until a lot later with you know i mean things like office of the witcher and i mean house of the dragon is a great example at the moment isn't it mm-hmm. of how george rr R. martin drew on mocock but to me reading mocock at the time did it feel more I, th- I think in terms of things like um, The Jewel in the Skull and the Hawkman novels and not necessarily the Elric novels, but some of the other uh, more loosely connected stuff, yeah, there was a, there were a lot of things in there that really marked it out as very specifically British. You know, having um, John Paul George and Ringo as gods of Grand Bretagne, you know, things <laughs> like that, and having Harold Vilson as the, uh, uh, Churchill, the, the howling god, and all those things. They, they were all very specifically um, quite, uh, what's the expression, um, politically charged and um, of their time, certainly. Yeah. And it, it is interesting that, when I first read Warlord of the Air, it was an American edition. It was an Ace Pocket book edition, mm. and it had Ronald Reagan in it. <laughs> so it was, it, it, it was a very kind of British take on mocking a political figure, because I think at the time Reagan was a, an actor-turned-politician who was just starting to make his way. And then in a later edition, which I came across in a Grafton edition, but the, 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 um, the manuscript was taken from an American edition that changed the name so as not to offend 
the publishers, so they changed it to mm. Egan. So th- there was always that that hint of sort of political satire and comedy and a little bit more of that in the British stuff, which grounded it a, a little bit. But I think, you know, in some ways you could say for worse rather than for better because it, it dates it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Whereas the American, I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, Robert E. Howard kind of looms over all of this stuff anyway. And I'm reading the Robert E. Howard stuff. Am I really registering at the time that that was written in the 30s? Or am I just reading it and and cooing at the incredible descriptions and mm, yeah. just how breathless and exciting and violent it all is? Probably not. You only think about these things really a little bit later on when you're an adult and you actually start to you know compare and contrast a lot of these things in your mind as you're reading them. Or sometimes roll your eyes because it's dated so badly. Right, start putting yeah. all the pieces together. Um, so we should start talking about this week's book. But before we do that, uh, let's talk about things that you might recommend for us. It maybe that were found in those bags. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's such a long time since I've read any of them, and I've, I've listened to your podcast a few times, and you're up into the hundreds now with your episodes. And when it comes to inspiration for that, people could use for games. Appendix N, of course, is, is from Dungeons & Dragons, isn't it? But over the years, my, my gaming habits tended to drift away from, from sword and sorcery and, and fantasy. And one of my favourite kind of genres in speculative fiction, anyway, is what I like generally call the, the Britain is completely fucked subgenre of speculative <laughs> fiction, which, um, you know, we, we, we've seen it in a lot of places. So it occupies, might occupy a similar space. Things like V for Vendetta, you know, it's politically a nightmare. And th- there was a book that I came across that I think was informed, not necessarily by things like V for Vendetta, but there was a whole host of British fiction that predates V for Vendetta. British TV in the 70s and 80s was full of TV shows like, um, there's one called The Guardians, one called 1990, which generally was all about some kind of societal issues cause either an extreme right-wing government or an extreme left-wing government to take power and oppress people for one reason or another. And I came across this novel called um, Tracer, and it didn't come from Pops, but it came from one of my uncles, called Tracer by a guy called Stuart Jackson. And Stuart Jackson died quite early, sadly. It's the only book he ever published, but it's one of those classic Britain is fucked kind of books where, um, in this case, a potentially fatal communicative disease causes everybody to get really, really paranoid, and the right-wing government that is ruling England, ruling Britain at the time, uses it as an excuse to oppress minorities and subjugate the population with um, fascist authoritarian policies. And it just so happens that that book, it was released in the height of the AIDS crisis, and the communicative disease is AIDS. And I actually used that a lot, and I wove that into a campaign that I ran for a long time. And looking back... You know, stuff like that's fine in fiction, but actually the content of that book was like a a frothing latter-day conspiracy theorist wet dream. You know, when you think about how things have gone now and all the conspiracy theories we have around COVID and how COVID is, it's the government coming to get us, you know? And mm-hmm. so that's probably the most influential book that I ever read that actually influenced one of my games. But I think from a fantasy angle, I'd probably say, and again, this was one of Pop's favourite books. It's a book called My First 2000 Years. And it's uh, a really fascinating book written in the 20s that was overshadowed, really, post-war, because one of the authors ended up going on in the 30s to be a Nazi propagandist in New York. And he was imprisoned in 1941 and spent the rest of the war 
in prison as uh, for failing to declare as a foreign agent. Right, but sadly, this really over, uh, overshadows the other author was a, a, a New York Jewish poet called Paul Eldridge, and this book is about a guy called Cataphilius who mocks Jesus when he's carrying the cross to go to his own crucifixion, and Jesus curses him with eternal life. So it's about this Jewish guy who lives, becomes immortal and lives for 2,000 years and has numerous adventures and encounters with people from history. And throughout, there's this cycle of encounters with people who he thinks may have been reincarnated. And it's an absolutely fascinating book. There was also a, a sequel, which, which I've never read. And it, it felt really unique until one day Pops gave me a book called Casca uh, the Eternal Mercenary by a bloke called Barry Sadler, which appears to have taken the car concept and just turned it into a series of 35 pulp, <laughs> pulp adventure right. novels. Um, but, yeah, my first 2,000 years, ever, ever since I read it, I've always thought if, if I could game face-to-face once a month, maybe more, but once a month, like I did when I was a kid, you know, and game with the same group of people... Like a millennia-spanning game where a, a functionally immortal character, like the Eternal Champion, for example, um, could be rotated amongst players through different eras, and actually the rest of the players play a, a surrounding cast of characters who are mortal. Again, it all sounds very Eternal Champion-ish, and when you have these character, mm-hmm. these conversations about how do you do a real Murkockian role-playing game, do you have one character as the Eternal Champion and everybody else being cannon fodder? But, you know, there's unfortunately, because I only get to really game in person about four times a year um it's absolutely impossible for me to do so i've always thought that's maybe one for the nursing home in the future if i ever my dream I is to that nursing home. because um by switching the players because you have these time jumps so they don't have to be completely consistent like this person yeah. owns the character yeah um i have some trivia about casca but let's get into the real book that we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So today we are discussing Paul Anderson's Operation Chaos. And Andy, which edition of the book are you working with? So um, when you offered me the option of what we were going to cover, I went straight on eBay and found this copy here, which is... I've got no glasses on today. Um, It is... It's from Bolton Libraries in the 90s. It's an ex-library book. I always enjoy ex-library books. And it is uh, Seven House Publishers. And it's the first, it's not the first hardcover edition, but it's the first hardcover edition published in the UK. Nice. Mine is also a decommissioned library book. Mine is the 1999 Orb paperback with this hard science fiction cover that really has nothing to do with the story that we've just read. Um, And I can't find the the spot on here where it says what library this comes from i remember i seeing that it was in south dakota but now i don't remember the name of the library i was gonna give it a shout out to that library but can't do it now never mind boy yeah. what are you working with i'm reading with the open road media ebook which also includes the sequel that was written 30 years later operation luna um it's fine there's not too many mistakes but the pagination is super weird because once it gets to operation luna it just thinks operation luna is one page so every time you it says it's page 256 every chapter starts with page 256 <laughs> but the uh first third of the book is there and it seems to be fine um and it's readily available on amazon if people are looking for it and i found it it is the yankton community library in yankton south dakota there so you go. thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you citizens of yankton <laughs> Yeah. All right, Hoy, do we have a Hygaxian word of the day? We do. It's uh, one that was picked by one of our people in the book club, Jonathan Nickel. It's therianthropy. 
which is basically the main beast uh, transformation. And we have a lot of those in the book. And he was at pains to point out that Gary Gygax got it wrong because he used lycanthropy as the generic form, but that really only means applies to wolfmen, whereas theanthropy applies to uh, animals as a whole. Although, again, looking up on Wikipedia, it turns out it implies that they're mammals. So if you're talking about like a, a weird crocodile, you might have to use <laughs> zooanthropy. <laughs> that is a good so, word. Theanthropy. <laughs> oh, there's no shortage of nice. those words either. Is no, there? no, there's Tons so many Gygaxian words in this book. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's there's nobody who uh, can who who can convince me otherwise that uh, Gary Gygax did not read a ton of Paul Anderson and especially like this book specifically. I feel like he had to have read this, but um, so yeah, we can go ahead and head on into the library. Andy, what did you think of Operation Chaos? Well, the, the first thing that struck me was that it's so obviously. I think they call it a fix up book, don't they? Yeah. Where it's it's and and that's actually something that Mocock did. A heck of a lot of and Mocock's new book that comes out tomorrow as we're recording this is a fix-up of a couple of old short stories and some additional stuff that he's written so it was quite common at the time but it it, it is such a whirlwind of ideas and content I mean the first chapter is just uh, a massive detail dump you've got basilisks invisibility dragons broomsticks um artillery it's it's like a, a combined arms nightmare in a in, in a in a war setting, which is which all comes by so fast and so breathlessly. It, I really had to laugh at the pulpiness of the the, the main character, this Steve Matichek guy, who's a peacetime matinee idol, also a Jewish werewolf, an all round horny dog, um, and, and it's incredibly <laughs> and amusingly shallow right throughout the entire book, which I, I kind of enjoyed. But the first, the first three sort of adventures, if you like, are, are very obviously short stories because they're so breathless. The speed at which these concepts are just thrown in for fun is is uh, breathtaking. There are so many things that are thrown in where you think, I could actually read a novel about that concept on its own, almost. I didn't know, really know what to expect because I've never read it before. I thought, is this going to be a war? But the fact it actually became episodic, and I, I think... Um, so the first part is... Um, a fantastical war story. The second part is like Hogwarts on steroids, or is it Hogwarts, or is Hogwarts just Trimagistus University on Soma? I don't know. There's so much stuff going on in there. And then the third part is got you've got this low key, spooky setup that then just gets all super horny, and he gets you get more horny Steve action, and then all of a sudden, and and that those three short stories probably account for maybe only the first third or half of the book, and then suddenly yeah. it develops a pace. And it settles down, and it gets into more of a, um, uh, a a decent pace where you can actually just take a breath. And at that point, I was really impressed with the first three short stories, with a couple of probably exceptions that were more related to when it was written and possibly the attitude of the author to certain things. But once it actually becomes more of a procedural about overcoming uh, a scenario at a steadier pace, I started to enjoy it a lot more. Mm. I felt like I was reading short stories, and there were short stories, and I think it really showed. But once it really got into its got into gear, it does drag a little bit in the third act, I would say, of that final part of the book. But the last 30 pages, absolutely chef's kiss, pulp, nonsense. Incredible. All the descriptions of hell are brilliant. The actual... 
denouement with the Baron of Hell and who he turns out to be kind of randomly was <laughs> amazing. I was laughing my head off just at how ridiculous it was. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it, but it's not without its faults. Mm. Yeah, for me, I I didn't enjoy this so much. You know, I've um, I've read four uh, Paul Anderson books prior. I know this is the fourth Paul Anderson book that I've read. Um, Broken Sword, I think, is a masterpiece. Mm. And oh, I'm suddenly forgetting the name of it. Well, what's the uh, the High Crusade? The High, High Crusade, Crusade is a blast. Is amazing, yeah. <laughs> so fun, so fun. I had the unpopular opinion of not liking. Um, um, oh, what is it? Hearts. Three, hearts and three, three hearts and three lions. Three hearts and three lions. I don't. I don't like it. I don't like it. And this one, I don't really like either. And my my big problems with with this is the 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 fix up part of it was real clunky. This didn't when more when Moorcock knows how to do a fix up. Moorcock mm-hmm. can fix fix it up and make it feel like it is a novel. It can feel like there are a lot of very specific set pieces that the character travels through, but it still feels like it's a cohesive story. This one did not. Also, I don't like the main characters. <laughs> I don't like Virginia Greylock. I don't like Stephen uh, Stephen Matichek. I just I I think they kind of suck. Yeah, he's a, uh, he's a know, real it, dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the beginning, we're hanging out with Virginia Greylock, and she is telling Stephen this hilarious story about how to torture one of her Muslim prisoners. She kept putting food in his mouth and then turning it to pork. Yeah. And I'm like, you suck. Yeah. Like this is and, and he's laughing while she's telling the story. And I'm just like, I don't like these people. And then later on in our final story, where he is now um working for this big uh this big weapons manufacturer and he's trying to beat uh he's trying to uh, fight off i almost said beat off uh he's trying to fight (laughs) off the (laughs) beating off hippies is maybe something that he would have enjoyed doing in a different story but he's trying to fight off hippies in this story and using like you know essentially like um not very harmful chemical weapons essentially Mm. to like push them away and i'm just like dude you suck so I don't like the characters. I and aesthetically, I'm just I'm not a huge fan of the urban fantasy thing when we have like fantasy elements in the modern world. Too much of that can it just doesn't really work with me aesthetically. But I will say there are things I do really like about this. I think Paul Anderson did a fantastic job of exploring what would the world look like if Blink was there. And I think that there's some really great explorations of that. I I, I think a great example of that is whenever Steven turns into the werewolf and Paul Anderson really explores what would it be like Mm. to become a werewolf. I love that we have this whole, there's this whole discussion around the conservation of matter. So, if I am going to transform into a were creature, I'm going to transform into a were creature that's my exact same size. Mm. And I thought that was a really kind of an interesting idea. And I like how he talked about what it's like to now have a wolf's brain and a wolf's brain chemistry and a wolf's senses. And he explored that in a really beautiful way. And from a world building perspective, I love there's a he, there's a moment where he's talking about how any backyard warlock could accidentally drown um, his entire town by trying to use like sprinkler magic, essentially. But that the way that they do that, there are these inhibitory spells that are constantly in place that prevent things like that from happening. Mm-hmm. And I just think from a world building perspective, that's great. And it really helped me with my buy in and my suspension of disbelief. But overall, didn't really enjoy it. Hoy, what are your thoughts? Um, I uh, put it 
definitely it's not broken sword which is, i think is out of all his books is an absolute masterpiece not just paul anderson's masterpiece but a legitimate masterpiece um so i thought it was um sort of fairly average for this project i'm not i'm not upset that i read the book um i think there's a lot of great ideas in here it is um unintentionally sociological i think um it's uh the uh you know, all the, the first three stories in the fix-up were written in the 50s, and so it starts really reflecting sort of the people settling down after the GI Bill. I don't know if they had an equivalent thing in, in the UK with people, you know, so all these people coming back from the war and getting demobilized, but getting yep. government assistance to buy, you know, to go back to school, get their first homes and stuff like that. Um, and then the last story is written in 1969, so he's clearly talking about the anti-war movement and hippies and stuff like that, um, but since it's an alternate world, there are these people who will follow the Gnostic visions of Christianity. And so they're misguided. They're not wrong. So he's, Paul Anderson's like generous enough of spirit to be a small C conservative. He's not saying these people are, are evil, but they're misguided, right? The, these, these people who are, he's standing for the hippies and, and anti-war, you know, anti-Vietnam war activists. Um, so I think it's in, interesting and un, unintentionally, so, uh, unintentionally sociological, although I guess anything we write that would be set in a contemporary world, now, if we write something now, 50 years people from now was like, oh, that Jeff, and he was so dated about his attitudes towards, uh, you know, gender fluidity. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Yep. Um, I think, uh, actually, uh, Andy, you mentioned something interesting, because I think in our, our book club, uh, which we have prior to the show, so it's one of our patrons, uh, patrons who come up and can discuss the book, two of us had a very similar reaction to you, which is that we liked the last third of the book, the, the part that was written in 1969 better, whereas the bulk of people seem to like the earlier part uh, more because I think they just thought uh, it was pacier. The short stories mm. are snappy, they're funny. Whereas the the last third, it becomes um, sort of more grand. Well, it's not more grounded because they're going to an alternate dimension, but it's becoming mm. more situated in a very sort of specific story and circumstance. Um, yeah, I should qualify that a little bit though. Um, the the bit that you referenced regarding the allegories regarding the civil rights movement, the anti Vietnam War movement. The, the pulpy stuff at the end pulled pulled me back from the brink because had I not been reading this for a project, I might have actually put it down. And whether I would have picked it up or not, I don't know, because you've got this situation where, and is it, is writing, oh, this is certainly copyrighted. This section was copyrighted around about 1969. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's, Steve makes a reference at one point while he's in the factory that he works in where our heroes have actually become defenders of the military-industrial complex, (laughs) (laughs) effectively. And there's a bit where he actually refers to protesters and machine gun bullets. And this, within a year of the publication of this, you've got the Kent State Massacre, Massacre. right? which really pins it into a certain period of time. And I I think it's fine that Steve, the character, seems to have a fairly reasonable attitude to the protesters to a point, and the ones that he encounters, but there are a couple of pages just past that where he thinks about the natures of the nature of protest and protesting against the establishment, and that really stops, in my opinion, I think that stops being speculative fiction. That becomes Poole Anderson's attract, basically, mm-hmm. about Poole Anderson for two pages talking mm-hmm. about how protesters are wrong and how you need the establishment. And it, and he essentially, it's really reactionary, and it actually breaks down into that the, the most simple of arguments whenever these conversations come up. In my, you know, in my world, it would have been sixth formers arguing at school or arguing at home with a dad. And when they essentially say, it's all right not liking the establishment, but you know what? When they break into your house and they're raping your family, you'll be screaming for the cops and you'll be buying their truncheons. 
and that yeah. two pages becomes that. And at that point, I was like, oh, okay. But then it very quickly shifts to the, it becomes like a police procedural. You get the kidnapping situation. You get all of his extensive musings on Christianity and sects and uh, a vivid descriptive chapter about him visiting the Johnny's church, which in some ways felt like it was going to build up to be some kind of investigator sneaking right. into a, a, a Lovecraftian cult. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, <laughs> it's nothing like that because the guardians who he has to get past are just going, oh, yeah, whatever, man, come on in, just stay, stay the right side of the purple rope. <laughs> and, it's just, and, and at that point, I was like, okay, it does get a little bit bogged down in a lot of goetic techno babble for a few pages, but once it becomes the quest, the adventure, then I was like, okay, I'm starting to enjoy this again now. Mm-hmm. And the ridiculous yeah. reveal of the identity of the Baron at the end was the most pulp, ridiculous mm-hmm. thing I've read in a long time. I can almost picture like Benny Hill playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually, I actually pictured the Baron once he started. I was picturing him as a really terrible British comedian called Freddie Starr, who made his entire career out of doing bad Hitler impressions. Sounds ridiculous. <laughs> look up Freddie Starr. Starr with two hours. Look up Freddie yeah. Starr Hitler, and you'll see what British television comedy was like in the 1980s. Right, right. <laughs> I will say I did. I loved the third story, though. I thought Operation Incubus was a blast. I had a lot of fun with that one. And in that moment, in that story, Virginia and Steven seemed so Brad and Janet to me. And the Succubus <laughs> Incubus was so Dr. Frankenfurter. And because of that, I, I had a hard time kind of letting go of envisioning them as Brad and Janet. So even in the fourth story, when now Brad's working for the arms company, like I can, I can see Brad going off to do that. So that still worked for me. Mm. Um, but in general, that third story felt very kind of Clark Ashton Smith in a way, mm-hmm. but it's like if Brad and Janet were thrown into a Clark Ashton Smith story and I don't know, I was just, I was digging it. I had, a good I had time that with sort that of one. loose decadence that the Clark Ashton Smith story has. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was, it was very short though. I think it's right. probably the shortest of, of right. them. And Steve um, was still a massive dick in that as well. Yep. Because <laughs> yeah. he, he, he gave Ginny no, no, Benefit of the doubt. Cut her no slack at all. Nope. None whatsoever. <laughs> and then and then the moment the moment he's dragged in, he's he's nearly in the tower banging away. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> the only reason he isn't is she shows up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and even then um, he says, I'm I'm still deciding whether to forgive you. Right. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> he's such a dick. Right. It is. it is so funny to see the sort of weird tension between Again, and he's talking about goetics and it's like this weird descriptions of the hell dimension, which are so bizarre and, and clearly do have an influence on Michael Moorcock's depiction of chaos, right? Uh, and we know that Michael Moorcock was at the very least was a fan of the bro- huge fan of the Broken Sword. I don't know mm-hmm. how he felt about Paul Anderson's other books. Um, but so there is that weird tension between this very conservative technocratic side of Paul Anderson and this wildly poetic side of him. And here it's less there, but you still see it sort of trying to poke through from time to time, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny. And I kind of wonder, I mean, you're sort of more the expert on, on Moorcock. Um, did Moorcock have any truck with any of other Paul Anderson stuff? Or was it really only broken sword? That was the thing that he felt was, uh, you know, influential on his work you know? well he's, he's certainly quoted the broken sword as being heavily influential on his work and i think the the hell descriptions now i've not got them in front of me but I'd, i would have to go back and check the publication date of things like the night of the swords where um where you get some of the quorum mm-hmm. going through the different planes to challenge um Ariok. and th- there 
I, I, I don't think this is unique to Pearl Anderson at this point. I think Mocock has already written passages like this, but I do think this passage in particular, with all of the references to um, Euclidean mathematics and geometrics and all that, is a very different approach to Mocock. Mocock's much more psychedelic and, mm, yeah. and, and less deliberate about that stuff. And mm. I, I think there are definitely similarities. But in terms of whether Mocock had any truck with Poole Anderson beyond the broken sword, not that I'm aware of. Certainly by the point um, Mocock is writing the bulk of his more successful fantasy novels in the late 60s and he's also editing New Worlds, he's not publishing any Poole Anderson stuff, I don't think, in New Worlds. I could be wrong and I'd have to go back and check on that. But I think the other thing I'd have to point out is I'm a drunk guy of 50 rereading books that I read 30 years ago and I am making <laughs> no claims to being a Michael Mocock expert. <laughs> I have read a lot, though. I've read a yeah. lot of them. Right, right. It just seems interesting because, uh, well, I mean, you know, we all like stuff and we all like stuff for different reasons. But, yeah. I mean, I cannot think of two people who are more antithetical, at least in their personal yeah. Than Paul yeah, Anderson. Paul Anderson's a lot more aligned <laughs> with the Heinlands of that time, isn't he? Yeah. Whereas um, Mocock certainly is heading in a different direction and associating with a lot of different people. I do wonder sometimes if his reluctance, because Mocock is not afraid of being critical of authors that he dislikes, and when we know mm. that, we know that from Wizardry and Wild Romance and all of his all of his um, essays over the years. He's bagged Heinlein. He, yeah. you know, we know his opinions on Tolkien and lots of other authors. We know his opinions on Robert E. Howard and we know his opinion on Lovecraft. But I don't ever recall reading anything where he was critical of Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. good point. So transitioning this over to a gaming side of the conversation, one of the things that I was really surprised to see here is the distinction between arcane and divine magic. Because one of my big beefs with old school D&D is like, why do we have that division from the very beginning? With the 1974 uh, little brown booklets, our classes were fighting man, magic user, and cleric. And so Mm. the cleric was there from the very beginning. Before the thief class was there, we had the cleric class which never really made sense to me from an Appendix N perspective because magic-wielding god-worshippers in the same world as wizards who have a different kind of magic isn't really something that feels like it is prototypical of the sword and sorcery genre and the fantasy that early Dungeons and Dragons was trying to emulate. So I found it really interesting to actually come across Mm. a pre-Dungeons and Dragons story that does have a very clear delineation between arcane and divine magic. And I'm certain Gary Gygax read this book beforehand, mm-hmm. for, not only because of that, but for a bunch of other reasons too. But sure. I, I bet he read this and I bet this that was an influence on him. Yeah, I imagine so. And I think it does come to the the, the similarities in, well, background is not the right word, but because I don't think they had anywhere. Else. But, you know, Paul Anderson and Gary Gygax, again, uh, people who are living in the upper Midwest, they're sort of, small C conservative Christians. And so that they have, you know, they're not the sort of wild creative that Michael Moorcock or Dave Arneson might be. Right. So, mm-hmm. so, so where it's all in the same stew. So they want to draw a clear distinction between, you know, it's not even divine magic. It's just divine force. Right. And then it's arcane magic. Right. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And so I think that has to do more with Gary Gygax than a, than the literature. Right. But we yeah. now have evidence in Paul Anderson. 
I could be wrong. It does make me want to go back to uh, Player's Handbook and look more closely at cleric spells. Are there any other pieces of genre fiction you've come across in your travels where there's actually been that differentiation? Not so much, no. And in um, and people who've um, really spent a lot of time going back and researching this stuff um, have just determined, um, or, or Gygax even, I think, wrote about in Dragon Magazine, how the cleric class really came much more from Hammer Horror. This was much more him trying to create the... Um, why am I forgetting his name? Van Helsing character. Peter Cushing, Van him Helsing. Creating, right. Yeah, having your Van Helsing character in a Dungeons and Dragons game, but Van Helsing is not a magic user. So I think, so that still never really satisfied me completely. Mm -hmm. And this reading, this I think is make me maybe making that click a little bit more for maybe like what Gary was going for with that, but still not entirely sure on that. And I think there's a lot of contradictory and post facto justifications that a lot of the original D and D creators put in there. And I think my understanding is that, the the Van Helsing thing um, that might have been Gary Guy Guy stating, but that really came out of Dave Arneson's game. There was somebody there who was a big fan of of um, Hammer Horrors and wanted to play Van Helsing in the game, so that's why they came up with the turn and dead rule. As for where the, the clerical magic came from, Dave Arneson's game, that I don't know. Um, one thing I will say, and since you were mentioning uh, Andy about going back and looking at the clerical spells, I'm not sure it's in the cleric in the player's handbook or if it's in the DMG, um, but did tie in somewhat to this book, which is that it does make clear that the various level of clerical spells are earned in different ways. It's not about you studying a book. So the first uh, three are your sort of your devotion to your, to your religion. So first three spells you can just do by prayer or whatever level four and five or four through six are, are granted by intermediaries to your deity. So the, an angel or a demon or something like that, you know, comes down and grants you those powers. And then the actual seventh level spell are granted directly by your deity. So if you're out of favor, you can't cast like a resurrect or, mm. You know, those other major spells. And again, I don't know if it's in the player's handbook or if it's in the DMG, but I remember that as a thing. And so here we do have evidence of that in this text with these various like, uh, you know, uh, if if for nothing else, the, the two mathematicians, one of them could be, one of them is a saint, right? So it's almost mm-hmm. literally an angel. And yeah. the other one is sort of one step below. He's in purgatory, but he is sort of in favor or at least not out of favor with the higher power, right? Yeah. Yeah, those things you've just mentioned as well that were maybe may have been in the DMG. They've been pulled out a little bit more vividly in a lot of OSR products, haven't they? When it comes to um, divine spellcasters, as opposed to because really Van Helsing is a book nerd, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He's he's an academic yeah. who 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 figures out that you turn undead by using something that's a real world application. So, but yeah, I, I think uh, certainly some of, I've played Black Hack a few times over the last year or two and. The um, and, and actually not just that, but D and D fifth edition, I've played a little bit online, and there's there's very much a connection been made between your patron, for example. If you're out of favor, then you know unlucky, you're not going to be able to cast anything. So I think that's been certainly drawn out more in in more subsequent editions. But good God, the AD and D first edition Dungeon Master's Guide trying to pull anything out of there without making your eyes bleed was a bit was, was <laughs> exactly. a, a, a bit of a a bit of a well, it's travail, you know. Right. I, yeah. It's fun when you're very young uh, because it's so mysterious. It is an arcane tome in and of itself. And then obviously for uh, certain personality types, of which I am one from time to time, it's fun to go back and think, oh, that one sentence, this is where, it, this is the mother load, this is where it all comes from. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. or maybe Gary just wasn't that good of a writer and he was very disorganized. I don't know. One of those two. <laughs> 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 totally. 
Andy, did you notice anything else that seemed especially proto D&D to you as you were reading this? One of the things that struck me was the opening chapters about the war. I seem to recall that there were a set of source books, and I think they were actually translated to RuneQuest 2 as well, but I cannot for the life of me remember the name. And I think they might have been based on a different series of novels, which were about a a technological war, but with D&D tropes woven into it. And I can't... It's really irritating me because... And I think I might actually have one of them upstairs. But maybe maybe one of your listeners will be able to pop this in a comment somewhere that that, that right. does actually exist, and it's, it's really bugging me as to what that's called. That's the right. first thing that struck me, is somebody out there has made an attempt to actually gamify the concept of having uh, essentially a war setting with technological weapons and magic and elves and dwarves, and it does actually exist out there. It's just really bugging me that I can't remember what it's called. In terms of the other stuff, I think just you mentioned um, the the concept of being inside the head of, of a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Straight away, I was just thinking, how do you gamify a werewolf as a class? You know, yeah. g- give me some of that juice and detail. I, w- I would love to, to go with some of that because D&D always had... Even with things like Unearthed Arcana when that came out, which kind of blew things up and, and people cursed Cavaliers for being overpowered and everything else, it always kind of stuck on a track. It never really blew things open in terms of having things like werewolves as player characters, potentially. Yeah. And there's there's so much great flavour in here, you know, putting aside some of the perhaps attitudes of the author and the fact the hero's dicks. You could play a werewolf who isn't a dick. So give me yeah. give me the framework to do it. And mm-hmm. what what was slightly disappointing was that we we get all of the descriptions of Ginny as a witch, and I think she's only called a witch because she's a woman. Because in terms of actually of, of witchcraft, all of her spells and everything else, all, everything's quite nicely codified once you get down into all the, the techno babble, and especially when you get to the university and you've got the different people from the different areas of the university, all of whom are uniformly men. There's not a single other female character of power, I don't think, in the entire book, with the exception of the succubus when it becomes female. There is yeah. one woman in the group, but I can't even remember what her contribution was. In, when they put together that brain trust in the last story, there is one more woman, but I can't remember what her contribution is or what, yeah. what, what her department or anything like that was. But yeah, so but also speaking to her magic, this is not the kind of magic that I would ever really want to gamify and put into a game system either. Because if you recall, originally she studies magic that is, that is um, exclusive to maidenhood, and uh-huh. so all of her magic comes from her virginity, right? And when she ends up marrying Stephen and they end up having sex together, her magic is gone. Yeah. So she has to learn how to do magic from scratch, not using this kind of maidenhood magic. And a big yeah. reason I would really not want to emulate something like that in contemporary gaming is it really plays into this idea of purity culture mm-hmm. that says that a woman is only valuable, a lo- assuming that her virginity is still intact. And then part of that kind of becomes a question of what does it even mean to have an intact virginity? Mm-hmm. And also, why are we measuring anybody's value or power based on this particular thing? Yeah. Um, so it's not it's something that I'm happy leaving in the past, with that part at least. Right, right. Yeah. Good point. Right. Mm-hmm. The only well, I should say the only interesting the one interesting thing about that, I mean, that's that the surface level is just completely, you know, distasteful and icky. It is interesting, again, they because it's unintentionally sociological. 
with all the women who were able to join the workforce and and do things outside of the home brief period of time in World War II, right? But then as soon as the men come back, they have to like, you know, become go back to being homemakers and do that. So she has to basically give up everything that made her who she was until you know, these exigent circumstances emerge again, right? So that, again, is unintentionally sociologically interesting. Um, but yeah, it's, but it's I agree with that. A little icky. Um, I don't think this is the story or novel you were mentioning there, Andy, but there is a great story called Thor Meets Captain America by David Brin. Have you heard of it? Uh, I'm not aware of the story, but I know David Brin. Yeah. Right. It's on his website. It's a great story, and it's not at all uh, campy, even though the title sounds like Basically, what happens is that the the Nazis somehow invoke the Norse gods to bring them onto their side during World War II, and then they, it's going really badly for the Allies, and then the Allies have one last gasp attempt to, to stop the Nazis, and that's, right. that's the story. So, uh, it was, I think, also adapted as a graphic novel called The Life Years, but it's not, I don't think, what you were talking about, but it's a great story, and it's not at all campy. It's actually quite dark. Yeah, um, it's, it's still bugging me that I can't remember the name of that supplement. Yeah. But it sounds like something, uh, oh, sorry, it was a, a mystical World War II thing you said? It was, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically D and D in World War Two. With mm. it's going to yeah. bug me, but yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll end up I'll end up emailing you about twenty minutes after we're finished. <laughs> I'm also sure that our our the comments page of our when we post this yeah. and on Twitter, well, I'm sure everybody will be telling <laughs> us what it is that you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the other things that I really noticed is how um, in this book, Dark Vision, which they call Witch Sight is infravision mm-hmm. and it, that's how it works in original D and D too. It's not, it's not that you see in low light you're seeing in the infrared spectrum. So I think that that's interesting that that's very specific distinction that that's found in this book is also found in early D and um, The other thing that I think is interesting is we very clearly in this book have werewolves, where tigers and where bears, which are also Three of the wares that are in the original monster manual, and a were, so and a were, there's a lot of st- a wear pelican as well. <laughs> yes, a wear pelican is referenced. Yes, and that is not in the monster manual, but um, but I do think it is really interesting how much of this stuff does align so neatly with the original editions of D anD. Mm-hmm. And I, I think yeah, definitely Paul Anderson and Gary Gygax were on a similar wavelength. They like to codify things, place this that that idea of Gygaxian naturalism. So it's Gygax has fantasy, but it's not anything goes. I mean, he likes to mix science fiction and, and fantasy, but it's still like somehow grounded in some sort of pseudo reasonable explanation. Whereas, you know, again, Arneson or some of these other gamers like um who's the guy who could argue with Dave Hargrave? They're more like kitchen oh, sink. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're completely wild. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Know? And then obviously you get Greg Stafford who did RuneQuest, who's coming at it from more of a, a mythological storytelling uh so I think Gary Gygax is, is, you know, squarely in sort of the sort of naturalistic, uh, you know, engineering kind of background. And that's more similar to Paul Anderson's outlook, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Andy, do you have any ideas of anything you'd want to steal from this for your gaming? I, I, I really like the idea of, I've mentioned this already, I, I like the idea of having um, werewolves and kind of the... Um, not so much the World War Two stuff, but I, I really liked the police procedural stuff with um, 
Shining Knife. Was it Bob Shining Knife or whatever right. his name was? <laughs> who, I, who I thought was a character who was introduced. I, I wasn't entirely sure about the fact that once he was out of uniform, he was automatically wearing face paint and had a massive bonnet of feathers on his head. Perhaps that was... Maybe that maybe that would be the case. Maybe it wouldn't. That seemed a, a little bit caricaturish. But I did like the idea of that FBI division with, and I think there are games out this that do that do model this now. And there are certainly some English role playing games that go to some extent to model this type of thing. Because there's a game called um, Liminal, um, which allows for similar kind of. Um, game ideas there are lots and lots of games out there where you get police procedurals plus supernatural stuff but there's mm, like just some... the, the gumshoe games yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but there's, yeah. there's something about the setting of this one which felt that if, if you could make it a little bit more um perhaps take that stuff but make it a, a little bit more hard-boiled noir 50s mm. american hard-boiled noir with a sprinkling of this stuff in and you know the the thaumaturgy and all those little things I, I could go for something like that yeah mm-hmm. perfect yeah and uh do you have any final thoughts about this book that you'd like to share with our audience well it's much much as i love the ending it's not necessarily something that I would seek out more of. So I understand that there's a sequel. I might I might check that out, Operation Lunar. I might check that out at some point in the future. But whilst this is... I think whilst I enjoyed the second half more, I think if you're looking for gaming fodder and ideas, the first half is just absolutely jam-packed with... It's a mile a minute. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a breathless riot of stuff. And... Yeah. For that, I think, for, certainly for gaming, it could be quite rewarding. Hoy, final thoughts? Um, yeah, I think it's worthwhile. But again, keeping in mind that it is quite dated in a lot of ways. So again, for people who feel like, eh, you know, like it's much more like the like to talk about, like it's much more offensive to Muslims than I think he intended at that time because certainly that when he was referring to it's like basically the muslims are the, the saracens from the crusades because we were, that was you know pre 9-11 pre all sorts of our major middle eastern misadventures except for the uh, you know iran at that point um so it's just a little bit stereotype there i don't think he was um you know it might be a little bit clumsy like what he did with um silent knife the fbi agent but he's he's casting him as a positive character right the uh, john silent knife um so he's he's being ecumenical, he's just a limited, little li- limited by his mindset. So it would be interesting to have a game again, a modern game that is drawing on. I mean, we have the Native American Quetzalcoatls there at the end. We have Athena. We have Thor. So it'd be interesting to have a game where we could pull all that into a modern game. Because why put Thor in your fantasy world? Thor is in our world, right? I mean, our mythology. Athena is in our mythology. Quetzalcoatl. These are all our mythologies as human beings. So if we can have a modern game with all that, um, I think it's fine. We have to obviously be respectful and we have any number of our past guests who could tell us how to approach that and, and think about it thoughtfully, but still incorporate those elements. Um, uh, whether, sure. it's a, whether it's a police procedural, whether it's a war story, whether it's all human earth mythologies against you know the creatures of the outer darkness. Um, it's so much that you can draw upon here to, to have a game. Yeah. You know, even if you like strip away the most like fantastical thing like the flying brooms and make it a little bit more grounded is, would still work. Or you could go in the other direction and make it more superhero and it still work. So cool. And the only thing I would add to that is if you are going to be including all the religions of the world as things that are actually statted up, I would encourage you to also include Christianity in that. Mm-hmm. Because if you are specifically excluding that one alone, 
I think that that also says a lot about the worldview with which you're approaching your game design, which you might want to think about. Right, right. Whether it's the highest of all and everything else is just mythology. Yeah, because these are living religions, right, for a lot of people, right? Exactly. Yep. So, um, Andy... Would you like to be found on social media? And if so, where can people find you? Um, the podcast is at Breakfast Ruins on Twitter. That's also the same on Instagram. And um, there's breakfastruins at outlook.com if anybody wanted to drop me an email. Um, and I'm Stimbot5000 on Twitter as well. And I think that's just about my, the entirety of my coverage at the moment. Although, I, like a lot of people, I have joined Mastodon just to see what happens um, as, right. as Twitter goes through this strange schism that seems to be going on <laughs> yeah. at the moment. But I'm kind of sticking around and observing with interest to see just right, how right. bizarre it all gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is there anything interesting that you're working on that you would like our listeners to be aware of? Um, only really that w- our... Th- fourth annual birthday episode will be out in a week or so, but that nice. actually that won't be out before Ooh. this goes out. Um, so yeah, we're just about to crack our fiftieth episode, which feels quite momentous. But in the new year, we're we're picking up a few other things as well. As, as listeners will know, if they actually do listen to it, that um, we do cover things other than Mocock from time to time as well. So, which is why we call it a Mocock flavored podcast rather than a, a pure Mocock podcast. So, we picked up a, a Halloween special about James Herbert's The Fog, which was voted for by the patrons, and we'll be following that up with a look at what we're calling um, British uncozy catastrophes, which are uh, which were an answer to Ballard's um, criticism of people like John Wyndham. Uh, so a few other bits and pieces. I think we're also doing War of the Worlds in the new year as well in some various different guises. So, yeah, all sorts of things going on. Very cool. And we appear to have lost Hoy, so he seems to have dropped out at the last second. But that's fine because we are so close to the end of this episode anyways that I think we can still move on without him. Uh, so I just want to quickly uh, give a shout out to our patrons. Uh, our patrons get to join us for our patron exclusive book clubs prior to recording these. Today, we are joined by Robert Coleman, Jonathan Nickel, Brandon Cruz, Rick Byrne, and Adam Styers. Thank you all for attending. I would also like to give a shout out to our newest patron, Luana Sayada. Uh, thank you so much, Luana, for your support. And I would also like to give a shout out to a few random patrons. I'll grab their names out of the hat right now. I've got Robert Phillips, Brian Rumble, James D'Alessio, Kurt Hockenberry, Sean P. Kelly, Yorkus Rex, Jason Blasso, Ego Orb, Ray, and Gabriel Laycock. Thank you all so much for your support. Also, our patrons get to choose which books we're going to be covering. And the books that you will be voting on when this episode drops are our book choices for episode 143. The theme for that one will be alternate histories, and the four books up for vote will be Mary Gentle's A Secret History, Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, Mary Robinette Cowell's The Calculating Stars, and Justina Ireland's Dread Nation. So that will go up for a vote when this episode drops. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes, and Hoy is just back in time to maybe say goodbye. <laughs> hey, right at the last moment. Did you do all your our, all our good bits there already? We did all the good bits. All you got to say is see you in the stacks. See you in the stacks, everybody. <laughs> Read on. The library is closed.
Hello, Appendix N Book Club listeners. This is Oliver Brackenbury, editor of a brand new publication, New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine. From an in-depth essay on C.L. Moore by Cora Bueller, to a review of Kirk A. Johnson's latest book, to an original story by SNS veteran David C. Smith, to a story by emerging author T.K. Rex, New Edge Sword and Sorcery covers the genre's past, present, and exciting future. Made with love for the classics and an inclusive, boundary-pushing approach to storytelling, there is something for everybody. Check it out at newedgeswordandsorcery.com.